Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, today we're continuing in our series, uh, series His Story. We're talking about is God's story with the human family, the story of salvation. And so we're in the Old Testament, lessons from the Old Testament. And I've entitled our message today, Life Beyond Eden. So what happened after Adam and Eve? John Dykstra references a 2020 poll about the views of Canadians on multiple ethical issues. A recent Angus Reid poll asked 1,528 Canadians for their moral perspectives on a wide variety of issues. Among the findings, well, 51% of Canadians thought that using plastic straws is always or usually morally wrong. Only 20% thought the same of doctor-assisted dying and just 26% for abortion. He writes, people are rejecting God's law and are creating their own substitutes in an attempt to justify themselves. Surely, I may have just had my elderly mother euthanized and my unborn baby aborted, but I'm a good person because I always use a bamboo, not a plastic straw. I'm doing my part. How is it possible that the Western civilization is more concerned about plastic straws than human life? What happened to us? Those are real numbers. What is in the human condition that is so easily twisted and broken that we lose a perspective about what is important? Hold that question. One of the interesting things about my home country to the south is the differences between the various states. In some, in many states, crazy is perfectly legal. Let me give you an example, besides me. In states where it's not illegal, it's relatively inexpensive to buy and keep a baby lion or tiger, generally comparable to the price of a fine pedigree dog. Tiger cubs are incredibly cute and fun, except that in the space of just a year or two, they become adult tigers weighing several hundred pounds and capable of ripping to shreds and eating their owners. What's more, tigers are notoriously untamable, fickle beasts, playful one moment and deadly the next, making no distinction between human friends and enemies. When casual big cat owners realize they can't control their now adult tigers, they call Joe Taft, founder of the Exotic Feline Rescue Center in Indiana. Joe's sanctuary for abandoned wild animals is the second largest in the nation and provides a habitat where lions and tigers and such can live out their days peacefully. Although Joe and his team try to avoid letting the big cats reproduce, sometimes, well, accidents happen. Cats will be cats, I guess. And when there's a new cub born on the grounds at EFRC, it's hand-raised by humans until it's ready to live in the wild. In 2002, Joe was raising one of these cubs in his own home. It was a boisterous, wild thing, growing bigger and bigger every day. Still, Joe was fully capable of controlling his little tiger until the man had a heart attack and subsequently underwent quintuple bypass surgery. As you can guess, having a tiger for a roommate, even a young one, was quite dangerous for a cardiac patient. Suddenly, Joe's own home became a very real threat to the weakened and recovering man. And there was only one thing to do, 
Joe, in his own home, had a steel fence built around his couch. And Joe Taft spent the bulk of his recovery time caged in his living room, eyeing his things from behind bars while the tiger roamed freely through the rest of the house, pacing and roaring and keeping Joe a literal prisoner in his own home. By the way, Wisconsin is one of those states, home of the Packers, Brewers, and Bucks, and where I come from. So now you understand me a little better. We all live with this almost uncontrollable beast right inside of us. Not just in our home, but in the proximity of our hearts. Last week, we titled our message, Shattered. We were talking about Adam and Eve and what happened in this perfect world that God created. So God creates a perfect world, I believe what we said, 94 billion light years across. Perfect world, earth is the center of that world from God's perspective because it's where he put a reflection of himself in the human family. He made man in his image. All of the days of creation said what God made was good. Once he makes man, God says, very good. We are the crown of creation. And so we reflect a part of God, mind, intellect, self-determination, will. And he gave mankind free will. We're not just instinctual beings, we have free will and one moral test. There wasn't a list of do's and don'ts and a list of rights and wrongs for Adam and Eve. They didn't have a sin nature. They had no proclivity to do the wrong thing. They had one moral test, and that was simply don't eat of one tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up until then, they only knew good, but God said if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're gonna shatter what I have created. We chose independence from God. That choice shattered everything about us and everything about our world. For the first time, disease and death would be a part of the human condition. For the first time, the world itself, the planet was broken and would not cooperate with man. And things were added to the planet, like weeds, and the earth would not cooperate with man, probably cats at that point as well, as we mentioned last week. We have a broken planet. We have separation from God. For the first time, there was a need for forgiveness and atonement. That wasn't needed before. There was no sin. There was no need for forgiveness. But also, and this isn't talked about in the Adam and Eve story, a broken human nature, an inclination to do wrong, a bias towards disobedience, True independence from God and an inability to control ourselves. But you say, Adam and Eve just ate a piece of fruit. They only ate a piece of fruit. It was a fatal act, but it was just a piece of fruit. That was Genesis 3, the one moral test. Genesis 4 gives us better what happens when that choice ferments and grows in the human family? What did we really get from that choice? I want you to turn to Genesis chapter four. It's on page three in the Bible. Genesis chapter four, this is the story of Cain and Abel. And there's a lot more going on than just maybe what you remember from the story of Cain and Abel, and hopefully we'll get that right today. But we're going to read this. Stay with me. It's going to be a little bit long, so if you don't have a Bible, grab the one in front of you and turn to Genesis chapter 4. 
Now the man, Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now it's interesting, I'm not going to preach on this, but that literally could be interpreted, I have gotten a man, the Lord. In other words, she might think that she has birthed the Savior that was promised just on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Sort of the idea of a bright face with not a guilty conscience. If you do not do well, listen to this, sin is crouching at the door. Kind of like a wild animal uses that imagery. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You'll be a vagrant and wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you've driven me this day from the face of the ground. In your face and from your face I'll be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So he's worried about other descendants of Adam taking vengeance on him. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relation. All right, this is going to look like, why is this in here now? Why did Moses put this story in here? This is incredibly important for understanding the text. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. He built a city and called the name of that city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad became the father of Hujael, and Hujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Some great boys' names if you're pregnant. Lamech took to himself two wives. Now this is included for a reason. This is the first break from the creation order. Laman took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada. The name of the other, Zillah. One of them means beauty, and the other one means shady. Kind of beauty wife and a shady wife. Kind of interesting. Just, I, anyway, Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubalcain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalcain was Namah. Lamech, now this is again kind of important, it's about his ethical views of the world. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, so beauty and shady. Can't make this stuff up. Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. He's bragging about his violent nature. If Cain, great, 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 great grandpa, is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Listen to the bragging nature of what he's become. Adam had relations with his wife again. She gave birth to a son, named him Seth. 
For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born. He called his name Enosh. Here's an incredibly important editorial comment by Moses. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Seth is born. His progeny are calling on the name of the Lord. So he's given us some great clues as to what he's doing here. All right, two points, and that's it. First, life beyond Eden. By two points and that's it, doesn't mean they're short points, by the way. Don't make lunch plans. Life beyond Eden, sin had an unforeseen power never before experienced. Now, the traditional view of the Cain and Abel story is as follows. And I'm just going to explain that. Some of you have probably heard this. I've heard this. I probably believe this to some degree. And studying this, I'm not sure it's that true. But here's the, the traditional view of the Cain and Abel story. Cain and Abel are the first two kids. Actually, we don't know that. Adam and Eve had all kinds of children, including a whole bunch of daughters, because there are no wives for these sons unless they're marrying their sisters, which I know will freak you out, but the gene pool evidently was not so polluted then that you wouldn't end up with uh, strange problems from that. It didn't become illegal for a while in the human family. So Cain and Abel are two of many, many children of Adam and Eve. We assume they're the first two. I assume Cain is probably the first one. I'm not sure that Abel is the second. He's the second one we're told about. We also have been told that God has established the sacrificial system for sin's atonement, which means Abel comes to God with a sacrifice that reflects that. Some believe God's established a sacrificial system. Abel comes with a sacrifice from the flocks, so it's a blood sacrifice, and that pleases God. Cain did not do that. He came with produce, so you've sort of got the butcher versus the farmer's market, and God likes the butcher because it's a blood sacrifice. That's the traditional view of this story. Cain got angry about that, thought God should like my produce. He got jealous. He murders his brother. That was not good. Don't repeat. All right, that's sort of the traditional view of the story. It's probably not very accurate, both contextually and theologically. Chapter 4 is a little more nuanced than that, and a little more complex. But there are some contextual clues, which I tried to point out on the way through. And scholars agree on some things. They don't agree on everything in this passage. Now, when you're getting to, when you're interpreting the scriptures and you're looking at historical narrative, so this is historical narrative, this is history, and so Moses is giving us history, it's not always easy to know what authorial intent is in those passages. And by that, I mean, what was the author's intent of giving us this chapter of scripture? Sometimes in passages it's very clear because like in Romans, Paul says this is my point and then he states it in many ways. When you get to historical narrative, it's not always easy. So when the editor jumps in with a comment like at that point men began to call in the name of the Lord, you know, okay, that's a big deal. There's an editorial comment that breaks into the narrative. And there's some other clues in this passage we'll be looking at. So we're gonna look at those clues. So a little background. Adam and Eve have many, many children. Many children. Could have had 15 or 20. Could have had more than that. We know mostly of Cain, Abel, and Seth. They are the three mentioned, not even necessarily the first three. Adam lives hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after this. Mankind in chapter 5 lives a lot longer at that point in history. These three are mentioned because of their influence on history. That's why we have this story. 
Not because they're the first three children of Adam and Eve, but because of the story that they're a part of, the history. Cain was a farmer, Abel was a rancher. Offerings to God became part of the religious culture and practice. Now I say offerings because the Hebrew word here is for offerings, it's not for sacrifices. That's a big deal, especially if you had the former view of this. So if you believe that this story is about God being disappointed with Cain because he offered produce instead of a blood sacrifice, here are three problems with that view. You're reading the Mosaic Law back into earlier history. You're substituting the word sacrifice for offering, which is actually the word in the text, and you're ignoring the fact that under the Mosaic law, there were actually grain offerings given to God as well. So Cain isn't necessarily wrong to bring a grain offering to God. But either way, we all agree, Abel seems to have a heart to honor God that Cain did not have. He brought the firstlings, so the first of his flocks. He recognizes as soon as, you know, spring comes and all the sheep of bread and they all have their little babies, he's thinking, all of these belong to God. I'm going to give God my best. I'm going to give him the first. And, and it also says the fattest of them. He's bringing those to God. He wants to bring his best. Cain didn't take that approach. And the issue here is not necessarily their offerings. There's something going on in their hearts between these two. I'm not saying Cain came and brought the half-price bruised fruit that you see at the supermarket, you know, the, the stuff that's sort of a couple days past its prime. His heart was simply not honoring to God. There's not a reason given here. This is referenced in other passages, but there's not a clear reason given there either. We just know Cain's heart did not please God. Abel's did. Cain was angry. And God, who still evidently visited his creation, I don't think this is just something going on in Cain's heart or mind, this conversation seems to have been real between God and Cain. The Lord said to Cain, maybe he walks with Cain like he walked with his parents in the garden. Maybe God's presence, his visible presence, would be with Cain and his brothers. There's every reason to believe this. God says to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? God called him on his cell phone. He said, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? Cain didn't pick up. <laughs> now he did. He said, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do well, you'll, be, you'll have a free face. You won't be full of guilt. Your face will be up like we are when, we're, when our conscience is clear. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, to take you, to control you, but you must master it. We don't have to guess about this point in the passage. You've got God interacting with Cain. God is warning man about the potential power and grip of sin, which is showing up in very different ways than it did with mom and dad. We knew some of sin's results because Adam and Eve were warned. We did not know about the beast within all of us. We didn't know about the sin nature that is later talked about in Scripture. We didn't understand the power of sin, that when God said you will know evil, that it would possess us and our natures and our wills at the level that it does. 
We never saw the potential of Adam and Eve's sin developing to the level of moral weakness that we all struggle with. And right here on the very next story, the very next page of Scripture, we go from sinner to criminal. From sinner to capital criminal. Murder in the first family. We probably thought that the greater measure of free will remained in us. Even after Adam and Eve, we still have choice the way we used to. It didn't. In fact, Paul writes about that. I want to read that passage to you from Romans chapter 7. Doesn't this describe us? For I know that nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, like the willingness to do good. But the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I don't do. But I practice the very evil I don't want. If I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. There's this power in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he goes on. But the point is, there is a power that resides within us to do the wrong thing. And Genesis chapter 4 is the first time God actually talks to the human family about what that looks like. We are programmed now for wrongdoing. That's why we need Jesus so badly. Involuntary actions are trained like a fighter pilot. Can we be guilty for sinful responses that seem to erupt in us automatically that we don't even feel like we choose? Can we really consider sin voluntary if it is not consciously chosen? Consider the following illustration of how unintentional sin works. Why we just seem to just do the wrong thing. Trained instincts, that's how fighter pilots can react immediately to rapidly changing situations as they operate $30 million war machines. When a threat aircraft is closing in, there's no time for pilots to reason through what to do. They have to rely on instinct, but not just natural instinct. They need instincts shaped deep within them through years of regiment. The countless little decisions they make in the cockpit are automatic, but it doesn't mean they're involuntary. The pilot voluntarily trained for them, and in the cockpit, he reaps the instinctive benefits of that training. And like the fighter pilots, hours of training, our hearts are under a regimen of beliefs and values that don't align with God or with Scripture. They're drilled into us through what we put in our heads, what we receive as wisdom from other sources, and what we accept as normal from culture. And all of these shape our unintentional sin. We are programmed by our natures and by the world to just do the wrong thing, and it's what God warned Cain about. But none of us fails and says that we didn't choose it. We absolutely believe that we are free, don't we? I don't do the wrong thing and then blame God or blame somebody else and say, well, I didn't have free will. That was stripped from me by Adam and Eve. We feel like we're free, but we're not as free as we think, and we live it every day. And that's why the power of Christ is so necessary in our lives. God warned Cain about this. He warned him about that tiger inside. And Cain was possessed with anger against his brother. And he went on a walk with Abel. His brother is actually used in the text many, many, many times. It's like over and over, his brother, his brother, his brother. To kind of make the point, he's doing this to his brother. 
And I imagine he gets them out in the field. Maybe you see Abel's flocks in the distance. Maybe some of Cain's carrots and onions and probably an herb garden of some sort. And I imagine he gets Abel in front of him. He takes a rock and just smashes it on the back of his head. Killed his brother. First family. Next generation after sin enters the world. And then notice how Cain responds. Defiance. Defiance. Denial. Am I my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is. Sarcasm. God confronts capital murder, says to him, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. And then God confronts Cain with punishment, says you're kind of going to be banished. And then Cain complains about the punishment. He says it's too severe. He, he says, God, my other, other siblings are going to kill me because I'm banished and they know I've done this and so God marks Cain. Now we have no idea what that looks like. Some people believe God, you know, this is terrible, but this is where some racism comes in actually. Some people believe God changed his race. All right, doesn't say that. There was some mark on him that would tell other people that he's protected by God and God actually says, if anyone hurts you, I'll take upon that person sevenfold vengeance. So Cain is safe. And he settles east of Eden. The human family has now experienced the incredible power of sin. One expanding family line on the planet, and already one capital murderer. Genesis chapter 4. But the rest of the chapter is clearly about something else. Second point, two men and their choices quickly develop into two distinct legacies and kingdoms. Now this is clearly what's going on here, and I'll explain how we know that. After the first murder, there's a lot of information that seems sort of strange and unnecessary. Why are we talking about Cain's descendants? Why do we get several generations of them? Why is Lamech a big deal? Why, why the two wives mentioned? Why his attitude about sin mentioned? The editor here of Genesis 4 gives us a great indication of what he's doing, especially in verses 25 and 26, which I'm going to read. Right after this story about Cain and his descendants, as Adam had relations with his wife again, she gave birth to a son, named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, he called his name Enosh, and men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's an incredibly important part of this passage. We get Seth. Right after that, you have chapter 5. Chapter 5 is Seth's lineage all the way to, guess who? Noah, a righteous man. So here's what's going on. And this is a big deal for understanding authorial intent in Genesis chapter 4. The human family is very small. Abel was pursuing God. He was a good dude. Cain never really did pursue God. Not a very good dude. And he killed his brother probably with a rock to the head. The godly line is now dead. The character of these men is going to lead to legacies in Cain's life of unbelief and worldliness. In Abel's life, it was leading to belief and godliness. Abel has been killed. Where will the godly line come from? 
Hence, the story of Seth. Seth is born and develops a line of believing descendants that give us Noah. That's the purpose of chapter five, to help us get to Seth, to Noah. Seth, in fact, gives us many godly individuals on the path to Noah, if you read through chapter five. If you love reading genealogies, you can go ahead and do that tonight when you can't sleep. But the rest of chapter four, before Seth, is about the line of Cain to help us understand how this murder birthed into other ungodly thoughts and actions. It wasn't good. Here are a few textual hints. Cain's genealogy is listed for many generations. It's like they just go one generation after another till we get to Lamech because he kind of stands out as not a very good guy. He's sort of the bad apple from the Cain tree. Lamech is broken down in significant detail. First, he violates creation's design and order by marrying two women. They're the first women named in scripture after Eve. Ada, beauty or adorned. Zilla, shaded or shady. I just love this, it's so funny. <laughs> yeah, beauty and shady, here's my two wives, beauty and shady, all right. Second, he's the father of all kinds of human invention through his sons. Now, these are, it's meant to sort of reflect the world and the importance of the world. Not necessarily evil things, but not the path of following God. And so you see all of these sort of human inventions that come through that line. It's in a negative context, even though they're not in and of themselves evil. Third, and this is very important, you see Cain's attitude sort of compounded in this great, 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 great grandson who knows about how God had put a mark on Cain and said nobody's going to touch Cain. Listen to what he says to his two wives, Beauty and Shady. Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. This is sort of like his motto, his song. In fact, it's listed that way. It's listed like it's a verse of, of a song. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. He's bragging about his disregard for human life. He takes God's promise of life to Cain from verse 15, nobody's going to touch you, and he projects it as a divine protection for criminal activity in his own life. Don't mess with me. It's not, some would say this isn't actual, that this was sort of his statement, his life model. But the way it's listed there, it looks like he's done this. It looks like he's also a murderer. I can't be touched. Try me. Mess with me, you're dead. That's what he's saying. Cain's family becomes the world without faith. Seth's family, replacing Abel, becomes a legacy of faith, which leads all the way to Noah. That's what the author is giving us in the rest of this chapter. Two apps. Life beyond Eden first, we all live in Genesis 4, 7. Is the beast within under the Spirit's control? God could say to us every day, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? You do the right thing, can't you look up towards heaven with a clear conscience? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You've got to master it. Rosaria Butterfield is a very fascinating woman. She's actually a, a lesbian woman in the States, I think in the eastern United States. Who, I think she had a partner. I don't know if they were married um, and she's really a poster child for change. And so I'm sure that her community does not like her a whole lot because 
She shows that identity is not what we say identity is often in that context. She was a lesbian woman. She became friends with a pastor and his wife. They had her over constantly for dinner. And she became a Christ follower. When she became a Christ follower, she stopped being a lesbian. She eventually married a man, has a family, and she speaks. She's an author. She's a speaker. And this is an interview with her on Focus on the Family a few years ago, navigating sexual sin to find your identity in Christ. She says that being born with a sin nature is a little bit like inheriting a garden. In a radio interview, she said this, let's say that you inherited an enchanting garden and for 10 years you just let it thrive. You let it do anything it wanted. You never pruned back the weeds, you never got rid of the pests, you never worked with the roses, you just let it quote unquote thrive. Let nature take its course. After 10 years, what is it? It's a disaster. It might even be way past the point of no return. And you go to a master gardener and you say, hey, this isn't fair. I want my money back. I just did everything I could to let this garden thrive. I didn't interfere. I let it do exactly what it wanted. You know the master gardener is going to laugh at you and say, buddy, gardens come with weeds. It's part of its nature. And by failing to deal with it, you destroyed it. How's your garden? How's your garden? Our garden comes with weeds, and we've got to learn to master it, or it destroys us. Is your garden progressively, progressively cleaner? Is it progressively more weed-free? Or is it in danger of being overrun with weeds, bad choices, morals, a lack of spirit, inspired change. Second, we all leave an ethical legacy. Well, I all do. Is it Cain's or Seth's? In 2009, a German scientist named uh, Jan Suman took a group of subjects out to an empty parking lot, an open field, blindfolded them, instructed them to walk in a straight line. Some of them managed to keep straight for 10 or 20 paces. A few lasted 50 or 100. In the end, all of them wound up circling back towards their points of origin. Not many of them, not most of them, every last one ended up walking in circles and coming back to where they started. They have no idea, Dr. Suman told NPR. They were thinking they were walking in a straight line all the time. His research team explored every imaginable explanation. Some people turned to the right, others turned to the left, but the researchers could find no discernible pattern. As a group, neither left-handed or right-handed subjects demonstrated any predisposition for turning one way more than the other. Nor did subjects tested for either right-hand or left-brain dominance. The team even tried gluing a rubber sole to the bottom of one shoe to make one leg longer than the other to sort of even it out, and that didn't work. We don't walk straight. And we're broken ethically and morally because of the choices of Adam and Eve. But here's the problem for us, and this is what happened with Cain, and this is the warning. An act in your life or my life, and we've all experienced this, an act that's not a good act becomes a habit, which becomes a character, which becomes a legacy. An act becomes a habit which becomes a character, which becomes a legacy. That's Cain. 
That's what Moses is showing us. He committed this capital crime, and then you see his great-great-great-great-grandson is actually bragging about how nothing's going to happen if I kill somebody. Cain's legacy was the world. Cain's legacy was not faith in God. Seth is given to replace Abel to demonstrate there was also a godly legacy, a faith in God, not a perfect legacy. Seth wasn't perfect, but he followed God and his descendants followed God. And your legacy is going to be one of those two. Is it faith in God and change? Or is it pursuing this world and no change? For some of you, some of you have known the Lord since you were four years old in the church nursery. Probably didn't make a lot of choices, and you've got a legacy where you've always followed Jesus. For some of you, for a lot of you, and I'm so proud of you if this is your case, you're making a life course correction later in life to follow Jesus. We all make those choices. I remember when I was younger, and I've shared this a little bit, but I grew up in a pretty difficult home. It was a Christian home, but there was a lot of anger. And there was a lot of hitting. And a lot of the hitting was with a belt. And when I was 17, I think it was about then, I told my dad I hated him, and I told him if he ever hit me again, I was going to hit him back at that point. And I meant it. I think that was one of the few times my mom slapped me right across the face. When I was about 25, I considered never going home again. And then I worked things out with my dad, who I love, and visited him a couple months ago and spent some time with him, beating him in games. Almost as good as beating Didi in games. But when I got married, I was absolutely determined not to pass on the angry brushaber male trait. Where my kids do something wrong, and rather than sit down with them and explain why we're being disciplined, I'm going to pull out the belt, and I'm going to, in anger, let them have it and think I am doing God's service by basically abusing them. I was determined to not pass that on. So much so that my wife at times called me Uncle Paul, like I always wanted to be popular with them. But she wasn't very good at spanking. We spanked but we were very careful to let it be an act of correction with restoration, not abusive. And I thank God that he helped me not to pass that on. I screwed my kids up in other ways, but not that way. We all have those issues in our lives where there's a challenge. There's something we can pass on. There's been an act by someone else or by us And we have to stop it before it's a habit, before it's a character, before it's a legacy. We all leave an ethical legacy. Is it Cain's or is it Seth's? What are you choosing in your life? God, we thank you so much for your word. And we recognize there's a lot going on here in chapter four, Cain and Abel, but also the legacies that are left behind. As Cain left the legacy that was clearly the world Abel and ultimately Seth left a legacy that was clearly a legacy of faith and love for the God who created them. I pray that you would help each one of us to recognize the power of sin in our lives and to choose Jesus. Jesus who not just saves us but changes us. 
and that we would try to build in each of our lives a legacy of faith pursuing you all the rest of our days. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.